Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. This is Zero X Saigon. We are about to go live for another ThorChain weekly live stream. Today, we're going to be joined by Chris from Grassroots Crypto and Chad Bearford, the one Chad to rule them all. Uh, I'll give them some, uh, some time here to, to trickle in, uh, and then we'll get this show on the road. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and, and uh, we'll get started in just a moment. Hey, there we go. Chris, good to hear from you, sir. Sweet. Is your first space? Yep. Nice. What an honor. Great to break your space cherry with you, sir. Sweet. Uh, ooh, we have the Pluto from Nine Realms. Pluto, how are you, sir? Good. How are you guys? Doing good. Happy uh, Merry Early Christmas. You too, you too. Just getting the eggnog machine started. There you go, eggnog to the moon. Um, pleasure to host you. Um, looks like Gavin might be able to join here in a few minutes as well. And then Chad messaged uh, about five minutes ago, said um, he'd be joining as well. But I think for this one, um, we'll let Chris kind of... Uh, host host a conversation here and get some updates from you guys on um on everything that's happening this week uh and looking forward on the on the protocol level chris you want to give a quick introduction and and lead the uh lead the rest of the space okay sure um so i think it's going to be a busy busy uh sprint at the end of the year and just look at the latest dev update so i think we ship 0.772 uh, from what I understand, maybe no Pluto StageNet got launched and the uh, radar got upgraded. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. That's that's just what happened in the last week or so. Um, we can talk about StageNet, um, but I just see just Chad just jumped on. So, um, oh, yeah, why isn't, why isn't Chad, why don't you give an update about kind of like where we're at now and where we're going into the new year? Hello, everybody. How's everybody doing? Hey. Sorry if I sound uh, sniffly or whatever. I've been uh, sick the last few days. So excuse me if I sneeze or or what have you. Um, yeah, so where we're at. So uh, we finally just did the router 3 um, upgrade, which was the last step that we wanted to take that was making some tweaks or improvements from the uh, uh, June or July um, issues we had. It was like the last thing on the, on the to-do list. Um, maybe my speakers here. Um, so that whole like that whole thing is now over. At least in my, my mind, that's true. We can now move on. And so uh, we finally did the router three upgrade, which is great. Next step is um, is moving towards uh, just getting back to like a regular churning kind of interval, which I think we're now on today now, which is great. Uh, and then the next thing after that is uh, is working on statement things and getting the network prepared for uh, new chains to be added, um, like like um, Terra and Luna, which which uh, Pluto can talk more about those things uh, later on. Um, the other thing that we're working on is talking about um, having nodes control the mirror instead of having of a mirror admin. So no, nodes have like the final say really, or the, or the highest authority if you want to call it that. That's one thing we've been talking about. Uh, the community been talking about uh, changing the, the incentives around node operators and should be paid out 
uh, relative to number of nodes versus uh, number of bond or amounts of bond. That's another thing that the community is kind of talking about as a whole. And then after that, another thing people are talking about is uh, allowing a single validator to, to receive bond from other individuals. Uh, they have to whitelist a list of uh, four addresses that they want to receive uh, room from to contribute to their, their bond of their node that allows more people to participate uh, in these nodes and even ones that don't have the technical skill sets to run a big complicated, you know, DevOps uh, system like a Thor node is. People can, you know, find somebody else, maybe Nine Realms would be a good example of that, or maybe Bison Trails or who knows, to run a node on their behalf and then they provide the room for them, themselves uh, on that side of it. So that thing that'll open up some things for, for the community. Uh, it's, all, it's all being discussed and proposed within the community and the community that they make the decision on how they want to move forward these things or if they want to move forward with them at all. That's up to the community to decide, really. But we're just kind of putting these ideas forward. Awesome. What do you, um, apart from StageNet and the uh, chains being launched, what do you see coming first with regards to, you know, things around um, either the control of the mirror or the increase in the bond? What Like what's happening? What would you expect to see coming up next out of those things? Um. Well, I, I hope to have, my intention is to have uh, a node-controlled Mimir to be done in the next version, in version 78, which is uh, being worked on now. So that, that'll hopefully be released to the community in the next week or so, uh, if everything goes to plan. Uh, the whole uh, getting more people to participate from a bond perspective, we'll have the code ready for that, I think, in the next maybe two weeks or so. But that requires more time for the community to kind of adopt this new thing, right? Like you have to build nodes, even building a node takes like a week in a sense. And so that'll that has a longer tail kind of movement uh, rather than like no mirrors, which is like available, should be available pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and then the other thing I think we'll be focusing on in January at least, or at least, uh, and maybe, maybe Pluto can talk more about this is uh, getting uh, the synthetic um, war games going. And so to, to create a kind of play uh, sandbox environment where the community can play with synthetics and start, you know, messing about with it, uh, get their hands dirty, uh, try to find some, you know, exploits or problems or issues or bugs or whatever uh, to give us an opportunity to, to try some chaos before we go to chaos net uh, and start, uh, you know, ripping on that soon. Awesome. Pluto, did you want to give an update of um, StageNet and, and how those um, chain integrations are, are looking? Yeah, for sure. So um, StageNet is up and running now. We have um, its permission now for different validators, meaning um, you have to essentially be on a white list of validators in order to join StageNet. Um, and so the reason we made that decision is essentially to increase the ability to do two things to to move with quicker velocity so that we don't have to you know wait on different people to adopt new updates or if we um, you know try to uh, stage you know a new pool like Doge for example we run into some issues um, we can just like cut a new version and quickly roll it out to all the nodes rather than having to wait for everyone to adopt so it'll it'll drastically speed up the sort of iterative development cycle on adding new chains. And then the other thing it's going to help us do um, quicker is diagnose issues. So instead of having to like do a back and forth with different testnet node operators, 
uh, many of whom, you know, sometimes would just like up and leave the network and just disappear forever because they joined, they got some test net rune and then they were like, okay, that was cool. I'm done with this experiment and they disappear. So, you know, we often found these test networks being in like a weird state for that reason. And it was just hard to debug what was going on. So staging is up now, nine rooms and specifically me are in control of all of those validator nodes. And we've seeded the pools using uh, real BEP2 rune converted to S rune. And so what this means is that those pools have real value. Um, you would actually have to switch real rune to S rune in order to, um, you know, purchase um, tokens um, on the on the stage net pools. So very soon we're going to release uh, Asgard X and potentially Thor swap um, um, support for StageNet. And so anyone will be able to swap on StageNet, um, except, you know, th there's very, very small liquidity pool sizes right now. Um, we only added about $1,000 worth of each L1 to the liquidity pools on StageNet. So if you, I don't know why you'd want to trade in those pools. Um, you get hit with a ton of slippage, but their prices more or less match what um, the current prices are. And someday somebody might decide that they want to arb those pools. But in the meantime, um, they're just there. Th those pools are just there um, to, to essentially act as placeholders. And we can, we can start seeding additional pools for Doge and, and UST as soon as um, the chain daemons are spun up for those. And we merge the PRs into Thornode. So, uh, I can talk a little bit about kind of what the testing and integration schedule looks like for new chains, but I just want to um, make sure we've, we've addressed everything about kind of like the mechanics of StageNet and the purpose for StageNet. Um, but do you think that's a good enough explanation of like what StageNet is and why we need it? Or, or are there any other questions about StageNet particulars? Um, what do you think? We, we could hold those to the end. I can talk, I can keep talking about integrations or we can, go a little deeper into, um, you know, sort of the execution of StageNet and, and its consequences. But those, those are mostly like, I guess, lower level issues and that don't affect really the average user. I think, I think everyone that's on this call is just basically wondering when Doge, when, you know, when Luna. Um, so what do you think? What, what, what should what, we could talk more about that or just talk, get right into the, the fun stuff? Um, maybe just get into the fun stuff. I think, just one thing, if people do trade on StageNet, the, the high slippage would be because they're shallow pools, is what I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. That's quite, exactly. probably not the best idea. Yeah, it's probably not the best idea. I mean, I, I'm, you know, someone may decide to do it, but, um, but there's really no point in doing it. Um, although what would be interesting, what I just thought of when, when Chad brought up the, uh, the, the Thor games, um, if we are testing synths first on StageNet, it would kind of make sense to do it um, in like shallower pools with more slippage because it would be easier to simulate a type of event on Thorchain where maybe someone like bought up like half the supply of, um, you know, a, a shallower pool on, on, on Thorchain and then like did some type of like mint attack on synths with, you know, manipulating the underlying price of the liquidity pool and then like burning synths or some weird, some weird thing that, I haven't really thought through, but someone may have thought through already. It'll be actually, StageNet will make it easier to test scenarios like that because in order to move the price of a pool by, you know, however many percent you would to make an attack like that possible, um, you wouldn't need that much of the L1 asset to do that. So um, StageNet might actually prove to be a perfect proving ground for something like Synths where, um, you know, we're going we're to basically put 
uh, for for Thor games, real real rune bounties, so so native rune bounties worth worth real money um, on different tiers of of exploits. And so if you can if you can like um, you know find a way to extract more than you know one one hundredth of the value of the pool in a single transaction using um, using a synth um, exploit, you know, will reward you however many hundred or thousand rune. I forget it, what it, what it is right now, but we will communicate the guidelines for Thor games in advance and, and we'll conduct it on, um, on stage net. So, um, when the time comes, we'll, we'll add the UI support to, for stage net. And then people will just be able to use stage net to knit and burn synths and also swap in those pools, very small amounts. Um, but that would be, you know, it's an ideal environment in those shallower pools for, for actually proving some of these economic attacks that are more theoretical and would be harder to actually prove in a, in mainnet. Awesome. Yeah, I think there's quite a few thousand, uh, rune dedicated to bounties. So that'd be when that comes out. I think, um, yeah, like 13 to 16,000, I think we had earmarked for, um, Lost. For for bounties on on synths, um, just for the Thor games. Yeah, it's it's no small amount. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, so we'll we'll release to the to the community what those guidelines are and what we're what we're looking for um, on um, on Thor games, like basically different challenges, and you know it ranges all the way from like really minor things like just front end or UI issues, just so we can get that buttoned up before they go live. Uh, you can earn like maybe a t- ten or hundred rune, you know, for for one of those, all the way up to like several thousand for those type of P one uh, vulnerabilities on since that could be, um, you know, possibly exploited through manipulating or moving a pool and a large, you know, a large amount in one direction, and then minting or burning a synth, and and kind of if you're able to like, t- you know, I don't know, someone someone will think of something and someone will win the win the uh, award, and it'll be pretty sweet to see what they do. Yeah, they did this for single chain cast net, um, like bug bounty just before launch with that spot. So that uh, that was quite good. Really incentivized to everyone to get in quickly and first, so you could find the bugs before everyone else. Um, and to do as much testing because it didn't matter, didn't matter how much testing you did. It's all about you know how many defects you can find. That's, yeah, for sure. That was really fun. So I guess let's let's go to the the chain integrations. So everyone's wondering when Luna in UST, and then uh, I just wanted to yeah, talk about that. And then is Solana on the radar as well, um, or or not? Yeah, we we can talk about Solana first because that one gets the, the, brought up a lot. The immediate uh, radar, I guess. What am I? Everything's on the radar. <laughs> the immediate radar. Um, so I mean, I, I actually asked the chat about that. Which, what do you think in terms of like the underlying? You're closer to that, like the underlying um, sort of like um, cryptography changes that need to be made to support Solana. Um, I think we, we needed to do those after the router V3 upgrade. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have to. We just we kind of wanted to because we wanted to stay focused on, on kind of buttoning up all the things we wanted to button up before moving on to add more things on top of everything. Yeah. Just, just about being completist and making sure we can smooth out all the edges of you know, the current change before we start going all in on new chains. Now, so, so Solana is a little bit interesting one because uh, it uses a different uh, mechanism for consensus than uh, history. Uh, and so that mechanism is, is very different. 
in terms of how it functions and how, how it accomplishes what it accomplishes what it accomplishes and so the so our the, the amount of work that it takes to add Solana is significantly more than it would be for something like uh, like Cosmos or Terra or those things are, are a lot simpler to implement than Solana is so they're much more expensive in terms of time it takes to do them um, but we're still I mean I'm still bullish on the idea of adding it for sure it's just that it's more time consuming to implement you know than it would be for something else like like if we wanted to for example like if we wanted to add like Binance Smart Chain or Dogecoin or all these other, other things that are based upon something we've already done it becomes mostly just like a copy and paste uh, from the current code we already have uh, maybe the, a few tweaks here and there but predominantly just a, a copy and paste and it becomes very simple and easy so you get to add a lot of value to the network without really doing a whole lot of work which is gonna, it, it has a nice kind of payoff in that sense but Solana is um, you know, obviously a, a great project um, and something we'll be interested in working on in the, in the coming few months. Uh, it's definitely like one of the very few projects in my mind that actually are doing something interesting. <laughs> Most of them are, are, are dog shit, but uh, this one actually is a, a very solid project with a solid team behind it. Yeah, and and the thing with Solana is, as far as I understand, which is admittedly not that well, I haven't looked at it. My, my focus has been more on like Cosmos chains but um, it does require some changes to like the vaults that we're using, like to secure Asgard. We need to add a new, you know, a vault, a vault that's secured by a new type of elliptic curve, as I understand it. Yeah. So that's so. What we what we support today is ECDSA, which is yeah. like the most commonly used elliptical curve uh, cryptography out there. As that's like kind of the first, uh, which is what Bitcoin uses and. Um, Ethereum uses and, and most things, but um, some some chains, um, I think Polkadot's one of them. Uh, anything that's crypto note based, so like you know, like so XMR or uh, Monero um, uses this ED, EDDSA, uh, which is a, a different uh, implementation of a similar mathematics. And there's actually a lot of benefits. It, to be honest, EDDSA is actually a better standard than ECDSA. Um, it has a lot of uh, benefits to it, but from our perspective, we don't really care whether it's ECDSA or EDSA. Like to us, it's like it, it's just you know, we, we just use the the the, just the cryptography that the, the chain uses. Like we don't have a like a selection in this regard. We just kind of say, oh, we want to add this chain. It uses EDS, EDDSA, and so we, we add support for it. So we already already do support EDDSA just to some degree, at least in the core protocol. There's a few things we got to add. Like we need to do it so that when we do a key gen with the key gen both an ecdsa and eddsa which we haven't done that work quite yet but i don't think it's like too difficult or too time consuming it's, it's pretty straightforward i'm pretty sure that the tss code underneath it all uh, already supports eds eddsa as well so i, I think we're, we're already most of the way there we just a few more a few things we got to tweak to get support for edsa totally and so it you know from a security perspective like it's one of the things that we want to be a bit more cautious about and we want to take a bit more time on. Um, you know, we might get, for example, like it's, it's just like a new, we're using a new elliptical curve type. It's changes to underlying crypto things. It's not just like a new Bifrost integration to, you know, read from a new chain. Like it's going to take more care and more effort than, you know, adding Solana or sorry, adding Luna, um, which is literally just like a Cosmos chain which is by far the, the simplest and I, I must say, it, you know, um, easiest chain integration that I think has been done yet because it's literally just like Cosmos talking to Cosmos. So 
it's not that it's not it's not as much um, of a of an underlying lift compared to something like Solana. Um, yeah, and, and also what makes it so easy is that like you have you have instant finality, right? So you don't have to worry about like reorgs or anything like this kind of nature. And there's no at least for Gaia, there there are no smart contracts at all. So there's no you know concerns about having transactions manipulated by some malicious code or anything like that. And so the the attack surface is relatively small on something like Gaia. Uh, even in Terra, it's pretty small. I mean, they still have like Cosm uh, Wasm for Terrace. So we have to figure out, make sure we're not interacting with any Cosm Wasm contracts directly, uh, just to to be have a defensive position. But like those things are relatively easy. But but Solana has a whole different mechanism of like how it generates blocks, and I think it even like can skip blocks. Like you know, you can be at block twenty and then like skip to block twenty five. I think, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a little bit complicated how it works. And you have to make sure that like. You, you don't you don't get into a split brain scenario where like some people think it's the chain is in this state and some people think the chain is in that state and then you have this really wacky thing in the middle here and become that, that can become problematic. So we have to make sure we that we they protect the network from those kinds of um, funky states that you can get into and either in a proof of work situation like you, like on Bitcoin we do reorgs and this kind of thing or branching. Uh, or in Solana's case, where you know different validators can have a different state of the or of the world at any given moment, and then they are supposed to work it out on their own, and which sometimes that doesn't work out, and they just hold the chain entirely for like hours on end because they can't figure out, you know, who's who's right, and you know all that kind of stuff. But we have to make sure we protect the network from even that kind of scenario where the chain is uh, not really sure what's true and what's false. Yeah. So. Definitely a lot more, you know, um, just unknowns with Solana and, and it's going to require some more time. Um, and then there was a Twitter poll recently um, where people were like, you know, what's going to be after Terra Luna, Doge, Solana? And it looked like the top voted chain then was uh, Avalanche. So we can, I mean, Avalanche, isn't that just like a fork of Ethereum or something? Shouldn't that be pretty easy? Uh, I actually don't know what Avalanche actually is underneath the hood. I never actually looked at it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think it's just I think it's EVM based. I'm not sure if it's like a a fork of Ethereum, but you know, that's I, I'm not I'm not aware of any issues with um, Avalanche that would prevent that from taking too well, much longer. I mean, if it is EVM based, then we already have an EVM based system, Ethereum, so it should be relatively. Hopefully, yeah. relatively simple. Uh, but I, I, again, I actually don't know what, what the underlying technology is of, of Avalanche. I just never had the spare cycles to actually go look and read about it. I've been too too focused yeah. on delivering shipping. Yeah, down. yeah. So I believe it's based. I believe it's based. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if you know, if that's what the community wants, um, like, sure, we can work on that after uh, after Solana. You know. Um, yeah. So. So. Those two aside, yes, what everyone's interested in right now is, you know, when Doge, when Luna. Um, Doge is ready to go, more or less. Like, I'm, I'm planning more or less after this call and over the next couple of days to, uh, to merge uh, Doge into StageNet. Um, and then, you know, when we make our first StageNet swap, you know, Doge for real BTC, real Doge for real BTC on StageNet, um, you know, that's when we can more or less open up the the discussion for community and node operator review um, and actually start the runbook for spinning up Doge on mainnet. 
Um, cause again, all that stuff's been ready to go for, for some time now. Um, and it is a direct copy of, um, of Bitcoin, but, um, yeah, I mean that, I, I, it's just like, it just depends on like whether we can muster the, the different front end teams and the, you know, the middleware teams like, uh, exchange AS, Asgard X, ThorSwap, all of these are, are individual teams that are outside of the core developers or nine realms ability to coordinate with. So, um, you know, as for when will, you know, Doge be added to the protocol? Uh, the answer to that is very well could be before the end of the year or, you know, very soon, very soon after like first week of Jan. Um, when it will be, you know, available in at least one UI to be swapped on, you know, by just, um, you know, everyday Joe, um, you know, the answer largely depends on, on other teams. So we can, we can, we're obviously helping to coordinate those efforts. And I think that we will have, um, Doge and mainnet, you know, sometime between now and the second week of January. And, um, and as for Luna, um, the client is, is more or less done. I think there's some more stuff I need to do with the, the signer code. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just pretty dang simple. You know, it's, it's using, you know, you just have a gas asset um, like every other Cosmos chain um, and, you know, the mechanics of it, it's, you know, when, when you're talking about using Cosmos SDK to basically um, parse a Cosmos transaction and then forward it to Cosmos, like in a format that Cosmos understands, the, the, Bifrost, the Bifrost implementation ends up looking pretty dang simple. Um, because like all of the block scanner APIs are already built out, you know, it's just built out as part of the Cosmos SDK. Um, so you're just calling native functions to, to parse transactions on one Cosmos chain and forward them to another Cosmos chain, AKA ThorChain. So, um, you know, that, that one's pretty simple. And then I think, yeah, it would be good to run through um, some of the use cases like to ignore um, or some of the things that we want, you know, the security cases that we want to do, like, ignoring um cosmwasm transactions or any contract um um any contract calls um not allowing rebasing assets um but there's a you know what we'll probably end up doing is just launch um the terra integration with a um with a with a whitelist of assets so probably just like ust and luna for now and then um if we do that then we don't have to like think through all of the different um, all the different use cases um, for for like different assets that might be able to um, attack the network if they were if they were listed so I, I'm very much in favor of you know when we launch chain integrations to kind of do it with uh, the guardrails on so potentially cap the the, the Luna or the UST pool at first uh, maybe that's not necessary I don't know Chad what your thoughts on that are but um, you know, we can, we can definitely do a whitelist of assets and just bring, uh, Luna and UST on at first. And, um, you know, one of the questions we've been getting or that I saw on Twitter was like, you know, are you guys going to audit this? Um, and that's, that, that's largely something I would leave up to like the community, um, and, and, and people to, you know, other than myself to decide, like, I'm, I'm just interested in delivering the code for the, the, the Bifrost integration and the infrastructure required for node operators. And beyond that, I want to see like node operators make the decision themselves to adopt the different chain infrastructure and to start running the code, um, you know, to, you know, I, I, I would love if the, if the mere value for halting the Terra chain was defaulted to yes. And that, and, you know, 
node operators actually had to use their their newfound node operator Mimir control to unhalt the chain. Like that would be a really cool way of, in a decentralized way, saying like, yes, the node operators are prepared and want this chain online. Um, so, you know, what when the timing for all of those things takes place, like that's, you know, that's, that's kind of up in the air. But in terms of like, um, you know, shipping Terra to StageNet, doing real Luna swaps with real Bitcoin on StageNet, and then preparing uh, all of the PRs and getting Luna ready to be added into the protocol. Um, you know, we're talking January for that. Um, and then of course, it's just a matter of like, do we want to put guardrails on the size of those pools at first? Do we want to put a whitelist on the assets? Um, and how quickly can the, the different UIs uh, adopt it? But um, the folks over at Thorsop said that they were ready to, um, to add it pretty much as soon as the Exchange.js integration is complete. So, and we got, we got two developers working on that right now. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, you, like you and I will just be able to swap like BTC for UST on, on, um, on ThorChain in mainnet uh, next, next month. That's pretty cool. Hell that yeah. That's pretty cool. Hell yeah. Yeah, we're almost later on UST. Uh, I think I saw it. It's now the second biggest DeFi chain, so overtaking uh, Binance Smart Chain, and it looks like it's going for Ethereum. So, um, pretty keen. I do, I do have a question. Um, so, for anyone thinking at home, what is ECDSA and what is EDDSA? So, ECDSA is Elliptical Curve Digital Signing Algorithm, and the other one is um, Edwards Curve, which is based off Schnorr sequences from my understanding. So from what I understand, the Schnorr went um, as part of Taproot uh, last month. So Chad is there. It sounds like because Taproot use, um, from what I understand, they use EDDSA. Would that ha then need an update within ThorChain to take um, Taproot type signatures or Schnorr signatures specifically? Or what's, what's the plans there? Is it to do nothing? Is it to get it there or, or wait for further adoption? Um, I just wanted to get your, your comments on that. Uh, in terms of like Taproot on Bitcoin support and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, Schnorr Signature um, specifically. Because I know a couple of wallet vendors have come out with it already, but it's not exactly yeah. like, you know, mainstream. I mean, Segwit took a while too. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't think we're – Quite in any kind of rush to implement anything uh, on on regards to Taproot knowledge because like Taproot doesn't really um, give you all that much capability over that we already have now, right? It also opens you up to um, uh, more of a smart contracting like concept within Taproot, which we don't want to expose ourselves into if we if we can avoid just to keep things more, a more secure perspective. That may change in the future, uh, maybe six months, six months from now, a year from now. That could also possibly change, but I think right now, uh, that just is, is too. Um, it's not much value to be to be pulled from that uh, that tree in a sense. At least not from my perspective. Awesome. Uh, I I want to. There's a lot of talk about uh, Monero and and Haven and when they're going to come to full chain. I know that Monero does a lot of work done. I saw that some PRs. Uh, there in Discord. I just wanted to know if there's any developments, any any news on that space, 
anything that the community could you know want to know, or is it just something that's you know still down down the track? Yeah, so Moneros thus far has probably been the most difficult chain to integrate with because of rig signatures, right? So the network needs to observe that a transaction was sent in order to know that a transaction was sent, right? I guess it makes sense. But because rig signatures make, kind of make that very difficult or basically impossible to see, that makes the, the integration into ThorChain very difficult. Now, we've been working, our cryptographers have been working with you know the, the Haven team for like on and off for months uh, and I think there's actually a new fork that that some other people, I think they are they're from South America, they want to fork Thorchain and create a new thing that is Thorchain plus like Monero. And so they're gonna focus on that as like their primary, you know, thing. And then maybe we'll just pull in their changes in a in a sense. Um but the the, the problem with Monero though, the probably the hardest thing um to, to deal with uh, other than the fact that you have, you have to like deal with rig signatures is that the, the memo space in, in XMR and the Monero is 16 bytes. 16 bytes is like, you know, nothing like Bitcoin's tiny and Bitcoin's got 80, you know? And so you don't have enough space um, in that um, 16 bytes to be able to say, Oh, I want to swap my Monero for Ethereum and here's my OX address and blah, blah, blah. Here's my slip limit, all these kind of things. That's hard to do. It's not really practical to do within Monero. That's, that creates a, a significant problem for us. And we've talked to the, to the team behind the Monero um, protocol that asked them, like, let's expand that from 16 bytes to something more reasonable. And they've always kind of pushed pretty hard back on that notion. So in order to make it practical, we, we have to create another mechanism within ThorChain where you have to, like, create a swap intent, you know, receipt and then you have a 16-byte reference code to that, you know, to that receipt of saying, oh, I want my up to Bitcoin. I want to, you know, a swap limit of this, and I want my BC1 address to be that, blah, 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 blah. So you get that little receipt that kind of represents a 16-byte code that represents mm-hmm. that receipt. And then you can, you know, when you make the swap, you put a little receipt in there, and then the network can look it up in its own internal storage. And, oh, okay, they want – this is – you want to swap to Bitcoin, and here's the BC1 address and blah, 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 all the information we need to know. So, but that creates like another problem of like, okay, now you need to have, you know, transact on ThorChain itself uh, to create a little receipt, which means you have to have a Thor wallet and you have to have Rune to do so, which is something we've always tried to avoid doing, not enforce people to, to carry or to buy Rune in order to swap on the network. But because of the limitations of Monero, we might have to go back on that on that uh, for this particular chain at least uh, go back on that but that's a very difficult problem to solve uh, downstream probably with something we'll do you know in 2022 is and TNS uh, doesn't doesn't assist that with the alias no it does but the problem was um, uh, even if with TNS you have you know say you want to swap to to, to you know BDC.BDC so you're already you know uh, you're already like seven characters in halfway through and then you have a colon and then you have, you know, um, a TNS name, you know, which maybe is five characters and you're already, I mean, it, that could work if you happen to have a TNS that's small enough possibly, but then you won't have space for like a swap limit. You know, I want to make sure I get at least you know, X amount of Bitcoin. On the, on the, it's even with TNS. It, it's, it's very difficult. It works fine if, like, if you're trying to do um, like Bitcoin because Bitcoin has 80 bytes in its minimum field that it can support, and uh, that makes it possible to swap to Monero because even Monero's like 
its address size is like 97 bytes, I think. Like, like the actual uh, Monero uh, crypto note address is like 97 bytes. So, like, if you have that address, and then you have you know a Thor address for the like the affiliate fees, and then the you know basis points for the affiliate fees, like it's a lot of data to push into a one little memo that you have a limitation of 80 bytes on. Uh, let alone 16 is even more kind of uh, it becomes completely impractical to work with. So we think it was, we think with other mechanisms to figure out a way to support something like that, you know. But then again, like we can we can support something like Zcash relatively easy because it is you know effectively a, a Bitcoin fork to some degree, and you can do uh, just instead of using uh, Z addresses, uh, use T addresses, right? And that makes it that kind of makes all this thing easier, and it's got larger uh, memo fields that it can support. Mm-hmm. So that one's a lot easier to interface with and to, to interact with if people want to have a a privacy based um, uh, like. Uh, asset on, on the network. Monero is also something that we're all we're interested in, but it's it's just very very tricky to get to get it to work properly. And what about like Haven? Yeah, I think Haven is is, is kind of in the same same boat. I'm not sure what the memo size limitations on Haven come ahead. Uh, but part of the problem with Haven though is that because the 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 monetary value of their block size of the block reward, excuse me is so small if you were to swap like a thousand dollars the number of blocks the network has to wait in order for it to you know wait enough blocks that enough confirmations that it can trade based on this information is pretty high and so the thing i'm concerned about with haven is is it like it may not be the most um practical interface because it would just take so long just to do a five thousand dollar trade you know that's that's the required confirmations, which is based off the block reward. Yeah, yeah. We we do a yeah. different system. Like, so the original idea of like, you know, where it says with Bitcoin, you can wait six comps, and that's what Bitcoin mm-hmm. is. Like that's that was from a research article in 2012 by this guy named like um, <laughs> something uh, Goldfee uh, Goldfell. I think his name is. I can't remember the guy's name. Your article, this research article, in, like in 2012, where he talks about confirmations and how many you have to wait, blah, blah, blah. And even in the article, the way he phrases it, so just like, oh, you know, like six is a good number, I guess. Like it's the way he phrases it doesn't sound very de- definitive. It's just like, oh, you know, something like this. But then as the uh, hash rate improves over time, since it, you know, like, like the hash rate today is like, I don't even know how many million fold it is over 2012, you know. Uh, like there's actually, there's actually a Bitcoin miner today that you can buy that is equal to the entire hash rate of Bitcoin back in 2013. <laughs> like a single miner, uh, ASIC miner you can buy. Like that, that's how you know, much we've moved you know, uh, in, in, in Bitcoin mining. So the, the whole like six confirmations thing was just like, was this, wasn't really based on any kind of logic or reasoning or mathematics or mm. you know, economics. It was just like, oh, you know, this is a good number. Like, yeah, okay. Right, and that was, which is not really a great way of thinking about it when we're talking about you know building an autonomous network that has to be you know, resistant to uh, you know whales trying to fuck with it and, and steal funds and stuff. So we have to take a much more de- definitive and mathematical approach to how we defend this network from reorgs and, and double spend attacks and, and this kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like you've got the confirmation counting, which is based, I think, the ceiling of the transaction value over the block reward you get. So if you're doing a one BDC in, you just need one confirmation required. If you're doing like a 20 BDC in, it's going to be like quite a long time. That's, right. that's what I meant. Yeah. Right. So, and so for, for Haven, that's a little bit more tricky because in Haven's case, the block reward is, is like, I think it's like 30 bucks or something like this. It's like, it's not, it's not like a huge quantity 
monetary value to it. And so the number of blocks you have to wait is significantly higher on Haven than it would be for BDC or ETH or something mm. that's more, more established and has a higher uh, market cap to it. All right, sweet. I did see, um, what is the, the duty pool going to zero? There's even a PR on that. Um, I, I didn't, I don't know what this one is. So maybe you can yeah. explain what this is. Yeah, so this is what happened. It's kind of I I found it to be kind of fascinating. So there were in the in the in the Dodo pool there were like I think there was like five or six uh, LPs in the pool, right? And one of those LPs had like ninety nine point like eight percent of the liquidity of the pool. Like it had almost basically the entire thing or very close to it, right? And so what ended up happening was this individual decided to withdraw a hundred percent of their of their value from the from the network which caused it to, the, the network to send out basically almost all this dodo over this vast, 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 vast majority of it. And it had to do that through every wallet in the entire system because it was just spread out across multiple, you know, multiple Asgards, multiple Yggdrasil vaults. So in the end, I think it sent out like, I think it was like 48 transactions on Ethereum um, to get it to, to send out all the liquidity. So then what happened was kind of funny was that because we basically spam the fuck like like DDoS Ethereum sort of right, and we put up so many transactions on, on Ethereum that we couldn't satisfy it in one block space, which means that some of the transactions were successful and some of the transactions failed. So then the network had to, because the you can still some of them failed, it rescheduled back to Asgard, but Asgard didn't have all the funds it needed, so then it basically got stuck there. But then to make things even even more interesting and uh, and worse is that because the gas used to, to send out all of those 48 transactions was like something like $13,000 in gas fees just because it's so many transactions happening all at the same time, uh, that the remaining rune in the, in the pool was less than the value of the gas used to send out all those transactions. <laughs> so it ended up causing that the, because of, when you send out those, you know, the, the, the dodo or whatever, uh, you have to swap, basically the network swaps to room, puts the rune into the reserve to pay for the gas later once the gas is actually observed. But like, because it wasn't enough rune to actually cover all of the gas, the room basically went down to zero for that pool, which means that you could not add liquidity, withdraw liquidity, or swap liquidity until somebody just like donated some rune to the pool just to kind of get a, a non-zero number and everything was kind of fine in that regard. So like, it was really interesting kind of, uh, kind of extreme scenario of like, oh, hey, there's like a, a massive pool in which case, you know, only like one person is of has any real value in it, and then they just withdraw, which causes it's like, but not 100%. If it was 100%, it would have been fine. It would have been an old, different kind of code execution path. But it was, wasn't 100%. It was 99.8 or whatever the hell the number was. And so that kind of created this interesting kind of uh, uh, failure case in this like kind of edge scenario. Right. So it's just a deep pool. It's a deep distributed owner pool is, is what's required here. <laughs> Yeah, but there's also some some improvements we can make around the protocol itself to be more re- like resilient against these kind of crazy these crazy scenarios, which uh, I think we're going to be working on that like sometime relatively soon. But like it's, it's really not a, like a big problem that I'm all like that really concerned about or thinking all that much about because it's such a, a weird scenario to be to begin with, and it doesn't really cause any real issues. It's just an annoyance. We just got to kind of patch a little bit. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that is cool. So I think in the last month, 
couple of weeks, there was um, a responsible disclosure for a TSS vulnerability to do with, I think, exposing the key for a, um, a, a, well, a, a TSS. So, so if you don't know, Asgard Vault is a TSS uh, vault. So it gets created through a key generation. And then when funds move out, it's through a key signing process. And there's a vulnerability uh, discovered in both the, the original implementation and then the updated, this is the GG18 and 20 implementation for DSS. Um, and then that was responsibly disclosed and a bounty of $500,000 was paid by, by ThorChain. So maybe could you just talk through that TSS vulnerability chat. And, you know, I know we, I know it got fixed, but maybe just have a chat about that. Um, any implications and, and um, yeah, anything else you can add about that, about that there. That'd be good. Yeah. So this was um, like uh, a month or two ago. I remember because I was actually walking around Edinburgh with my wife at the time. And this guy had messaged me. <laughs> it's like, Hey, I have this exploit. And, you know, and, and threshold signatures. I'm like, oh, hmm, okay. <laughs> and so we started kind of chatting a little bit about the bug, and then it quickly went way over my head because I'm not a cryptographer myself. I'm I'm an engineer, so uh, this threshold signature stuff is, is definitely way over my uh, my technical expertise. But and so I, I connected him with our cryptographer to help them kind of start chatting through the issue and all these kind of things. So basically, the the crux of it, without getting too technical or, or complex in, in the description, is there's a way that you could generate a, a key gem in which you you could force other people to expose their private key to you, sort of. And so it, may, it makes sure that, that, that in a situation where the network is doing a key gen, there was a possibility that somebody could have you know, exposed basically the private key by, convinced, by a, being able to brute force reducing the, the, the guest space to be able to brute force what the other keys are going to be by reducing your, one of your variables in your um, TSS share. Uh, that's probably as, as technical as I can probably take it. But um, so, yeah, so this person came forward. Uh, I think they were part of the original team, if I'm not mistaken, that helped design and build special signatures. Um, they, at least the first implementation was written, I think it was Rust, I want to say. Um, they came forward to us, and then we um, went to other teams as well because it was a it was a problem in the Binance library itself, not so much in the ThorChain code that we've written, but um, a problem in the, the underlying library that we imported into our system. But a bunch of other teams participated in, in that or used that uh, library as well. And so we actually created a new Telegram group um, of just like threshold signature, kind of like Thor a security team if you want to call it that, where we have a like kind of, you know, uh, quick access to the heads of all the different threshold signature projects in the space. So they, we, we could responsibly disclose uh, to those, them, you know, about this vulnerability and, you know, they can, uh, before we expose anything publicly to ourselves, we want to give those teams access to that bug as well and to be able to mitigate any issues they may have and all that kind of stuff. So this is really like about, um, about the hardening process of threshold signatures itself, right? Because that's a, a, its own bit of code that's been audited and all these things and, and built by Binance, audited by Binance. They hired an external team, um, which I'm blanking on the name of that team that audited that code off the top of my head. Uh, and so that, that was the, a bug that was discovered and we were exposed to it as well. Um, but we, that's why we paused churning because we had, as soon as we learned that this was uh, a problem where you can 
uh, during a keygen process to, to reveal the private key, uh, which basically paused churning entirely. So you couldn't, you know, if you were to learn about it now, you wouldn't be able to expose it because you would need to do a keygen to do it. And we just disable keygens entirely in the network just until we have a, a core issue uh, resolved. And so, um, so once this guy came forward, we talked to the other teams as well, other projects that were using social signatures to, to figure out, okay, well, we should pay this guy you know, some money just to, to further incentivize him and other people in his community to like continue to, to hack on social signatures, look for exploits and problems and bugs, um, which we did pay him out. I think, I'm not sure how much of the treasury we paid out. I think the vast majority was us. Um, because technically we have, we have the most at risk to be fair. So we were the first ones, really the first ones to use social signatures. Um, or maybe Ren was, but they're doing like a uh, kind of a hybrid version of it. But we have a lot of uh, liquidity at stake, and so we decided to pay off from our own treasury, at least the vast majority of all that, all those funds to that individual. And so he got paid out, and he's continuing to work, and he's going to look for more, you know, bugs and exploits and that stuff, just to make sure that you know, if there's anything more, he'll he'll let us know. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Big win all around. Yeah, and then so, there was a, yeah. there was a, another official signature uh, exploit that same Binance libra library again. Uh, we weren't exposed to this particular one because we have additional validation checks to be put in on our code. So for us, we were fine. For other projects, they were not. Um, they so they had to deal with that themselves. But again, like it's all about official signatures. Be having an implementation that's being kind of like that's that's being baked. You know, it's just being cooked. That's being given time for, for a lot of eyes. And the more money we put behind the project around, around special signatures, like, you know, that 500,000 we paid to this, this guy named Omar, like the more money we put behind it, like actual dollars, the more eyes are going to look at it. And that's just, that's going to just help the, that code base become hardened and secure just because we get as many eyes as possible from very smart and, and brilliant people, people who are a lot more intelligent, brighter than I am for sure who are looking at that stuff and looking for all sorts of cryptographic approaches to breaking uh, threshold signatures. That's awesome. Yeah, because that's where it comes is actually using with real funds. Um, yeah, you can order as much as you want. You can look at as much as you want. doesn't guarantee there's a vulnerability in it. So good that was found and fixed. Yeah, this stuff, all this stuff just requires time. I mean, any, anybody who's built, uh, I see Michael... Franklin's on, on the call here. I mean, anybody who's built um, a, a system like like Shapeshift or anything like it, like it, all that stuff takes time to bake. It takes time to kind of harden, you know. Um, even older systems, like I was talking to a friend of mine who works for a very large exchange. Um, I'm not going to say which one, um, but he he works for a very large exchange, and he found like I think three critical bones recently. Um, and on an exchange that's been around for a very long period of time, and it's a very well-known exchange, right? Like, so even ones that have been around for a whole long time doesn't necessarily mean that there are no, uh, you know, exploits or vulnerabilities for these kinds of stuff. It just means that they're typically harder to find. But you just want to get, you want to expose and bake as long as you can, as as many eyes as you can, to just to find everything you can possibly find. That's the, that's really the intent here. Awesome. Um, we got one more point. So there's the talk or the proposal for tying BEP2 and um, Ethereum. I think the the from what I got, the first target initiative would be to remove um, or retire. Uh, I call it ERC20 room. 
And I know that uh, the Source Swap Initiative is doing that as well with uh, one of its bonding options. So just talk through that. Um, why the retirement? And then why would you? Why is it the case that um, native ruin is going to be more effective, efficient, and, and liquid within uh, within Thorchain as opposed to other types of rune? Well, so uh, it all started with BEP2 rune uh, back in I think it was June or July of 2019 when it was first launched, and that was done uh, probably mostly because it just wanted to launch an asset and to, to get investment to, to, to fund the initial team and, and, you know, pay salaries and, and, you know, uh, buy infrastructure required, blah, 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 and all these things. And so that was always. We kind of thought about uh, never actually having a native asset and just always using BEP2 rune. Like that'll just become the, the thing. And that was kind of the thinking for a while. Maybe that might be, but then we just discovered that it's really is more beneficial and more efficient for the network to use its own native asset rather than an external BEP2 asset. We always we didn't want to be dependent upon anything else. Like like Thorchain's design is designed to be have zero dependencies on external assets. Right? We don't have no chain link. Right? We don't have no um, re requirement to, be, to interact with something outside of itself. We don't have oracles. We don't have any of these things to ensure that its success is, is reliant on itself and not others, right? If you, if you rely on Chainlink, for example, like Chainlink needs to exist or be around for you to be successful. So you're kind of exposing your risk as a project like by multiple, right? Because you require something else to be around to be successful and not be exploited and not have these problems. So anyways, we wanted to get rid of BEP2 uh, for a long time we knew there was a transitionary uh, asset, and now that Thorchain is you know launched and um, people can add you know funds into the pools and they can you know build nodes and all these kind of things, uh, I think it's the long-term effect the intent is just to retire these things. It just creates confusion to, for people like, oh, why are there three different runes and like which one is the rune I want to buy? And okay, I, I bought the BEP2 rune, but I can't actually do anything with it. I can't swap with it. I can't you know, put into a pool and I can't do anything with it. What the hell is the point of this thing? Like from an outsider's perspective, it's just really weird and confusing and, you know, not really kind of collected. And so to all of us, who's been in the project for a while, we all, can, we all kind of understand it and get it, right? But for, for newcomers coming downstream, that's just going to be overly complex and overly, you know, confusing for people. And there's really no need to have it anymore, right? It's like it has, it serves, it's already served its purpose. And it doesn't serve a purpose anymore, to be honest with you. Um, even if ERC-20 Rune was, was only launched just to kind of prep the Ethereum community for the Rune asset, uh, for, the, for the Rune network, because it was, it was going to launch, you know, um, multi-chain chaos net in April last year, or this year, rather. Um, and so we wanted to, like, kind of prime the spring, in a sense, right? Like, get people thinking about Rune and, and acquiring it and investing into it and start to learn, you know, the uh, economics and technologies and cryptography that we're using to do this X, Y, and Z, and to kind of help kind of start to build that community within the Ethereum community. That was really the purpose of it. But again, like it was only there for, for transitionary purposes to help to kind of build a larger community. And so as we, as now that we've actually launched multi-chain chaos net, which will eventually become mainnet and hopefully in the, in the near future, um, we just don't need those things anymore. And if people are kind of like, you know, sometimes freaking out that, okay, the price of Rune is over here, but the price of BEP2 Rune is over there. And like, you know, it just becomes, you know, a, a point of contention, a point of concern, a point of um, distraction. 
which we just don't need any of that stuff. Yeah, I, I think there's two two points of going back to Pep to Rune is that one you're you're reliant on finance that's not as decentralized, and then two is every time a Bep two movement happens, then you've got to that has to go through Bifrost. So you've got a Bifrost or an external chain overhead with the native asset. So it's much easier to have it natively on its own blockchain because then you don't have to deal with that. You've got the, um, you're just dealing with Cosmos at that point. That's how yeah. I understand it. Yeah. 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 But we're not really like, trying to rush this thing, but we just wanted to flip this idea of like, how do we expedite the process of kind of retiring these older assets and move the people off of the F2 asset onto the native asset uh, over the coming, you know, months or year or whatever so but we're not in a rush to do that it's not like it's not like a fire you know that we're trying to put out or anything like that or just we want to start the conversation within the community of the best way to to kind of get these transitionary assets off of our back and just be able to move forward with with a clean design that's uh, easier for people to understand especially for newcomers coming into the into the ecosystem cool what um Maybe for yourself, Chad, and for the, I have two points or two two questions to ask just to, as we start to round this up. Um, so what are you most optimistic for looking forward, perhaps in the next six months? Yeah, six months. And also what do you see is the biggest challenge or hurdle moving forward in the next six months? Uh, well, I'll start with the hurdle and I'll move to the, to the other one. Um, so the, the biggest hurdle we're focused on right now at, at this current moment is the is the bond um, and getting that to, to scale up. And we've been talking in different ways of, of approaching this and, and um, there's different like schools of thought that you could think about. And even one of those schools of thought is a, to do nothing at all. And that's actually a, a reasonable stance to, to have. But the only reason why we're even talking about this is only because like the, the, the general market's in a pullback, right? Uh, including room for that matter. And so because the room price is at a relatively low uh, state, the value, the dollar value of the bond is relatively low, right? Obviously, that makes reason, reasonable sense. And if if room was at its all-time high, if like to say it's like at 20 bucks, then we wouldn't be talking about this at all because we have just tons in the cap space. Like we'd have, we'd have so much, you know, free space and, and to, to add more assets that it wouldn't be even a concern in anybody's mind. And that's partially because because like there tends to be a, a quadratic relationship that as the room price, uh, let's just say the room price doubles in like in value from like let's say it goes from five dollars to ten dollars in a thought experiment, the actual uh, pool depth does not increase increase by two x. It actually increased by four x, which is slightly counterintuitive. It's it starts with two x because you're because you're you're um, the um, the value of your room is, is the number of room you require in the pool is dropped by half, but because of that, uh, the the incentive pendulum swings towards the LPs and they make a lot of money. So that actually creates a lot of pressure, economic pressure for people to add more liquidity to the network. So the tendency is, uh, is is that you have a quadratic relationship, either in the positive or the negative, depending on the price movement of the room asset itself, to actually provide capital. Uh, so. If room was at like it's twenty dollar price right now, then we probably wouldn't even be having this conversation, and we wouldn't even be concerned about it because it'd just be totally outside of you know 
anything that's important. The only reason we're talking about now is just because the market in general is in a pullback and we're trying to, to maintain our growth and keep on pushing forward. And like, how do we move forward in a way that, you know, maintain security, all these kind of things. And that's the only reason why we're talking about these things. That's the thing that I'm probably most concerned about at this moment is trying to figure out ways uh, to scale up that bond, right? And there's a lot of different ways to do it. And we're, we've been talking about these things publicly for the last couple of weeks now. Um, and we might just go for a multi-pronged attack in a sense, but uh, it's up to the community to decide how they want to go about it. And, and we're, I'm just here to kind of help educate and inform and make sure everybody has a clear view, viewpoint before they make a choice. Um, for the thing I'm most excited about, um, the thing I'm most ex uh, excited about, I think for me personally, is what we're thinking about in terms of the Thor savings and, and lending, Thor lending. These two things are uh, super, super, super massive. They are doing um, something in the space that nobody has done before in a significant way. Not even just the fact that it's cross-chain. Like that's pushing that aside for a second. Like that's by itself is a, ma a major thing. Being able to do like you know Bitcoin lending, for example, like that's uh, that, that's ginormous by itself. But to do it in a way where we we can um, have uh, people can invest into an asset and in a way that's um, single asset exposure, but still make a good amount of yield and a fixed rate interest rate is pretty, like, that's pretty amazing. Nobody's ever done that before. I think mean, the only thing closest to it is a UST's anchor protocol, um, but that's like their own asset. And this would work with anybody, any asset. It can be Bitcoin, it can be anything for that matter. Um, and then the lending thing too is, is really interesting because we're talking about how that be fixed rate interest as well, which means that you don't have to get, you don't have to get, um, you have to look at the interest rates every day and make sure you don't get like, you know, screwed by a sudden jack up in interest rates on, on your loan. You can just, you know what you're getting into and you can just, it's a very stress-free. And I think that's, what, I think that's one of the things I'm really excited about is that both of these things are very stress-free. They're very simple to understand. There's not a, lot of, not a lot of complicated mathematics involved. There's not a lot of complicated um, variables coming into play. It's just stupid simple. Uh, you don't have to understand like multi-asset exposures with permanent loss, like all these things just confuse the hell out of people, and rightfully so because it's it is you know complex to understand. But just the idea that like oh hey I have some Bitcoin and I earn more Bitcoin, there it is. Like it's, it's really that that fucking like that's that's stupid, which is brilliant, right? That that that's exactly what you want. You want something to be that that uh, simple and straightforward, um, and doing that in a way that's just like that is you know. Easy for people to understand. Uh, I think it's a huge shift. That I think the community is going to respond very well to. But most of the world, uh, the crypto space, has no idea about this whole Thor savings or Thor lending thing. Like, they're, most of them have like no concept of it, and they have no idea that, that the way we're talking about implementing it is something that's like just so far detached. The challenge is a lot of our kind of basic assumptions around lending, for example, that people have always thought like, oh, you need to have one hundred fifty percent. Uh, collateralization right you can't go below that it doesn't work right i'm like actually no there's a way you can do that it makes complete sense and still secure blah blah, blah these things there actually is a way you can do that and that's something we've been kind of like hacking on and or or kind of playing with wargaming a bit but that's even a huge thing because now you can actually like take a effectively you can take a swap from but it's not really a swap it's actually a it's a loan from from a from a, from a tax perspective it's a loan and not a swap but you're doing a swap <laughs> it's kind of this really kind of funny thing of like, like you are swapping, you know, one BDC and you're getting out, you know, uh, 
whatever the hell the whether asset Ethereum, whatever the hell the asset is, slightly slightly less than one BTC. And you're getting that's, that's a loan. That's a self interest, uh, self paying interest, because you're using your uh, liquidity units as your collateral. So that's generating yield for, for you. It's paying off the, the 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 loan and it's paying off the interest, all on your behalf, uh, without you needing to do or needing to do anything. Now that whole thing, if I understand correctly, and I hope I do, it's completely would be a tax free event. So you could swap without. Um, Really causing a, a taxable event, which I think I think that's going to be pretty, pretty massive for for the community. Oh look, we're not tax advised. Oh, I'm not tax agent, so you know, not not tax advice. Uh. Yeah, not tax advice. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not advisor. I'm just trying to think through, and I'm we're going to talk to other people who do know the stuff better than I do for sure. But uh, all of that is, is my intention is to, is to create it so that you can actually um, get a loan um, where you don't have to over collateralize like 150 percent. Mm. Or three hundred percent, or some number which you can't, which some people are kind of force you to. Um, did much closer to, to the not one hundred percent. It's like it's going to be like one hundred and one or one hundred and two or whatever it is. But like, so it wouldn't be exactly one hundred percent. And that's perfectly fine, safe, and the network can take on that. You know, that interest and that. I mean, it's not not as big of a deal as people think that it is. Yeah, um, uh, I've had a good read up. It looks pretty good. Uh, because the way that the interest rates calculated based off the depth of, of the loan depth on the pool, so um, yep. uh, someone needs to do a video on it. We'll get. I think when since go. On. No, I was gonna say like hopefully we'll have the complete write up uh, of a proposal for the community to to look at the inner workings of how it all works and get feedback and thoughts, get a, you know advice, comments, blah blah blah, all that stuff. Um, people can challenge our thinking, making sure that we're thinking through everything very tightly, all that kind of stuff. And, and, that and there's no rush on this too. So uh, the community will have plenty of time to, to think it over and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but hopefully we'll have something out for the community to read, you know, in the next couple weeks or so. The, the way I understand it is since we'll come out, there's the since war game, then you can yep. do iRune. Uh, iRune is just kind of like built on since similar mechanism. Um, then, and that, that includes the, that includes the savings because you've got to have um, the synth vault include well you know it's kind of part of the synth package and then iron you have a vault as well so there's your there's your saving then well, I'm, then you I'm do not the sure load. If we're going to be doing iron or not um, we can we cannot I think we need to think more on to it the the thing to be very cautious about with something like iron is that you want to make sure that all the rune that is being used put into the network is being used in a way that benefits the network. Um, and most of that really want to go towards either going into the pools or going to the bond and not going into some third entity that, you know, takes away from those other two, yeah. you know? So, and also, also the other problem with um, is that it creates a cell pressure on the rune asset whenever somebody goes into iRune, um, which is not beneficial for the value accrual of the rune asset. So even in synthetic rune in general, uh, creates a cell pressure on rune, and so we don't want to do that. We want to we, we want to have the opposite, where whenever you mint a synthetic Bitcoin or synthetic Ethereum or synthetic UST or whatever, uh, that always creates buy pressure on the rune asset, which creates more value accrual um, on you know on that base asset of, of the network. So we want to make sure we we are aligning things in a way uh, that that uh, benefits the, the economics of of the rune 
you know, asset uh, accordingly. And we want to make sure that any room that we are utilizing in the network in one form or another, that it actually does benefit um, either the pools or the, the, um, or the uh, bond. But how does it create the sell? Because by, by minting either iRune or synthetic, you have to acquire Rune, mint it, that increases the depth of the pool, which is better for the network overall. So why? Right, but, but because what am I missing when, you, when you put in um, when you put in Bitcoin into the pool to mint a synthetic Bitcoin, for example, you you're making the the pool Bitcoin heavy, which you're going to cause somebody to buy Rune uh, to put it into the pool to take out Bitcoin, and then sell the Bitcoin for a profit. And if you do the yeah. other way around, where you're making you're, you're making the Rune a little bit heavy in the pool, but more value in Rune, people are going to buy Bitcoin put it into the pool and then sell the rune on the other side. That's why. Interesting. It's a bit counter too, but it almost sounds like in reverse in a sense, but um, yeah. We want to make sure that we have the correct value accrual on the rune asset. That's important. Pros and cons, trade-offs. But um, if you want to earn rune on your rune, I think the, I think the way, one way to make that uh, easy for everybody. So there for a second is for you know uh running bond on nodes and whether you're a whale with 300,000 rune or more or you're you know a, a smaller shrimp in a sense and in providing um bond into a um a vault node either one of these two things like that's still gonna you're gonna earn rune on your rune right and if that's what your kind of goal is you can do that mm-hmm. through that mechanism and then you're also providing security and providing value to the network to be able to have deeper pools and more trade volume, all that kind of stuff. Sorry, I said that again, lost you there for a sec. Sorry, uh, I was just say, I was saying that if you want to earn rune on your rune, I think the way, one way you'll be able to do that is is by providing your rune into a, a bond through a, a light node or a volt node. And then you can earn, you know, right now I think it's like 12.5% APY on your rune. Okay. And so you can you can provide that rune and, and get more rune on your rune because that's what really I rune is all about. I think for people, is I stands for interest rune, and to earn rune on your rune. I think a lot of people in our community obviously want to earn more rune, and so that's partially why people are so excited about it, right? They want to be able to have rune and then be able to produce more rune from it, right? And I think uh, I think bond is probably the best way of doing that because it, it actually does contribute back to the network. That's cool. Um... I can go all day talking about this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pluto, uh, just, yeah, I'm sure we'll catch up uh, at a later stage. Um, Pluto, what are you op- most optimistic for and what do you see as the biggest challenge? Are you still there? I didn't show. Maybe not. Yeah, I think we lost Pluto. All right. Um, I mean, if anybody from the audience has a question they want to ask me, go right ahead. I can uh, come for you have a question to speak. So we'll go AMA or Q Q and A. We've got Marty here, so I just pressed approve, and we'll see what happens. Do you want me to speak now? Yeah. Um. So. I've been a rune hodler, but, uh, you know, my, as an old dev and, uh, kind of like 
of late in the last year, like super focused on the Terra system and the Cosmos system more than Rune. So forgive me for, uh, you know, Rune ignorance as I've been studying. Um, when you talked about the Terra assets, okay, and I haven't talked to Sonny about this on the Os- Osmos side of the house, but um, the AUST, the B Luna, and the Luna X all have basically um, income with them. You're aware of that? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So no one has really out there in the non Terra land um, really figured out how to like bring them into their chain and tap in to that income stream. Yeah. So when 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 you talk about you know we only want to do Luna and UST first, which is the same thing that Sunny did. Okay, don't get me wrong; it's a, it's a great strategy. Um, it would, it would, it would seem to me that, you know, Rune might be one of those places where tapping into those revenue streams, um, as a a holding asset might be kind of, you know, a fantastic thing. Sunny, Sunny talked about, um, this next phase of, um, the Cosmwasm interface being kind of upgraded, Unfortunately, I'm not even sure if you guys even use Cosmwasm in in these transfers. So, you know, forgive me for bringing this all up. I just just wanted to bring that up as as a kind of a commentary on the Terra stuff. Yeah. So the problem with like AUST, as I understand it, and I'm I am not a Terra expert, so you can certainly correct me if I say something wrong here. But the problem with AUST is that the asset gets rebased. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So mm-hmm. it's not like a static asset where once you hold it, you hold it. I think it because of how they do the payouts of how AUST, AUST works, I think. And so because of that, we don't want to hold an asset in our, in our liquidity pools that can, get be deep, that can be rebased by the um, original chain or whatever. I, I, to be honest, I have to look more into it and, read, and actually understand AUST more deeply. But there's some hesitation within the core devs around accepting something like like one of these income assets because of how the asset is treated. It's different than you know something like uh, you know X sushi, for example. Uh, you know, it's, it's different in terms of how it's structured. And so uh, I don't think we can. We do think very more deep, much more deeply about the implications of having a continuous liquidity pool with an asset that can be rebased and underneath it. You know, uh, the network can needs to always have a good understanding of you know how many of the coins it has. And if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I still need to to read into myself that it can it can actually change the amount of, of assets that it has inside of its system because I, of the rebasement. No, no, that makes sense. I think I think that's fair. Um, it might be a situation where a partnering with a Mars or a, or a Sater Labs might might there might be an asset that that could be created that doesn't rebate. I have to think about that one. But again, yeah. great great uh, conference here, and uh, thank you for letting me uh, speak. No, thanks for asking the question. Awesome. That's a good question. I, I think for the 
for the first round, we'll kind of, you know, as you said, we'll do what Sonny did, Sonny from, from Osmosis, um, and just start with UST and Terra. That's that the, the lowest hanging fruit, the most valuable fruit in a sense. And then we can move on to, you know, possibly supporting AUSD and other, other kind of those kind of assets in the future. But we really have to think clearly about these things. They're, they're very different behaviorally than every other asset in the space. And so we have to make sure we're not exposing ourselves to, to additional risk, you know, uh, or networking uh, to additional risk. All right, cool. We've got about five minutes left. So I will um, see if we get one more question in and can we'll go there. Can you got a question? Hi. Hello. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. How are you guys? So good. 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 Yeah. Love, love to be in this community. I just have um, a wish uh, or a question, basically. Um, I want to like us to switch gears a bit into these like uh, vault nodes and and light nodes. I know you touched uh, touched it a bit, um, but basically, mm-hmm. from my point of view, I think these like uh, the the uh, scalability limits of like bonded rune is is a top priority in my mind. So you you mentioned Chad mentioned is basically that there are a couple of options here. Um, I just want to have a better understanding of of, of uh, like uh, uh, solutions on table right now, and um, uh, in my like brief understanding is that there will be a bunch of nodes which won't participate in consensus, but will will provide. Uh, rune on the bonded side. So I'm curious how these nodes actually um, provide any security. Just just wish to have more color on that. Sure, yeah. So the reason why we don't do delegated proof of stake, as you see on Gaia, and I think Terra does it as well, um, is because we are, we'd be very concerned about network capture more more seriously than most other networks because we are securing external assets. And that means that in the situation where the network is a cyber attack, which basically means one person acquires enough resources to basically take over the entire network. In most cases, like if it was Adam, for example, or Gaia, who cares? Because the only thing you're, you're tanking is the Adam coin, which is the coin that they use to attack them anyways, and it's really going to hurt themselves in that uh, situation. But in Fortune's case, because we're maintaining external assets that don't go to zero if the network gets exploited, right? Like Bitcoin's not going to go to zero because Fortune gets exploited, or Ethereum's not going to go to zero because Fortune got like Cybal to act or whatever. We have to be very different about how we think about the security of this network, right? So. By providing delegate proof of stake on the validator nodes, the ones that are a part of consensus, uh, you create a, a, a financial um, incentive for somebody to cyber attack the network, just get enough capital, and you, you convince a bunch of other people who are not you, who are providing all the capital for you on your behalf by a, a good marketing you know, scheme or, or what, what have you. And so then you, you're not really providing much capital yourself, but then you attack the network and you steal all the Bitcoin and all the Ethereum and all the Tether and all the other assets and you walk away a very wealthy individual. So we, we don't want to do that. That's something we don't want to do. But that's where Lightnodes comes in, right? So Lightnodes, how they function is 
you can almost think of them like a Yggdrasil vault, right? There's it's a one of one vault, right? It's not it's not a multi sig, it's not a special signature, it's just a regular old wallet that is being it's holding some assets. So you create a, a light node and say you put up you know hundred thousand dollars worth of rune, just throwing out some random numbers here. Hundred thousand dollars of rune, and then the network will send you fifty thousand dollars in Bitcoin and Ethereum and whatever asset. Actually, in vault modes, technically it's gonna be one a single asset, uh, not multiple assets. And there's a reason for that too. But which I'm not going to get into right now. That's getting too much in the weeds. But it does send you about fifty thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. Now, if you walk away with that Bitcoin, psh, fine, go right ahead. We have a hundred thousand dollars of your room kind of sitting on hand, so we can just go ahead and liquidate you effectively and and give your room to the Bitcoin pool and replenish the fifty thousand dollars Bitcoin uh, by arbitration. Everything's fine. Everything's right in the world. The network uh, doesn't lose anything. In fact, in fact, the network does well in that case. So the network actually profits. So when you actually steal as a light node and all, all the funds and actually the network profits from it because it takes, you stole $50,000 and the network takes 1.5 X, which is approximately $75,000 from your bond and then, you know, gives it to the pools. And so they, they're very, very quite happy about it. Actually, they made a bunch of money from that deal, which is good for them. So, um, vault nodes, because you can't be part of consensus, you can't cyber attack. It doesn't matter how much rune you acquire as part of a vault node or a light node. You can you can you know have eighty percent of the circling supply of rune. It does not matter. You can't capture the network that way because you can never convince the network to send you the Bitcoin or send you the Ethereum or steal all the Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tether, and everything else in that world. That's why it's it's much more secure to do a light node and do why you can do a sort of delegated proof of stake with vault nodes because uh, it has no chance of cyber attack, no chance of of um, taking um, stealing all the funds together. You never have access to more funds um, that is not insured from the rune that you're using to bond the network. Now, there's still a, a problem, though. There's still a problem here. And that is, if I'm running the node and you're going to provide me some of your rune, um, you know, I could go ahead and steal the $50,000 worth of Bitcoin. You know, I'm only putting up $20,000 of rune myself, and you put up the other $80,000. So you, together we have $80,000, $100,000. So you got 80, I got 20. And we got fifty thousand dollars of the Bitcoin. I walk away with fifty thousand dollars of Bitcoin because I'm running a node. I still I lost twenty thousand dollars, but I gained fifty thousand dollars. So I'm up thirty thousand dollars in Bitcoin. I'm a happy happy customer, right? I just I just profited from the scenario. But shit, you got slashed, you know, a fuck ton because of it. So you just lost a bunch of money yourself. So that sucks for you, right? Again, the network's fine in this in this scenario. Uh, the network actually profits from it, such a situation, so the network's actually in, in a good place. But you and I are in a bad place because now you're pissed at me because I stole all this money and at your cost and blah blah blah, this kind of thing. So there's still that risk, right, of being rug pulled by the whoever the person is that you are entrusting to run their node for you. That they're not going to run away and, and steal all the funds. That's why we're, we kind of talk about you know having a KYC thing of. If you want to provide rune to, to bond to a light node, you should know who that person is. It shouldn't be some anon person that you never, you know, that you have some sort of telegram ad address to or something like this. You should actually know who they are. They should actually sign a contract with this person. They should be, you know, it should be Bison Trails or it should be Nine Realms or, or, or a Block Daemon or like one of these kind of companies that actually, you know, are legitimate businesses that have CEOs, CTOs, legal entities that you're signing a contract with. And, you know, if they do steal, then, you know, you, you can sue them in court and all these kind of things, these kind of uh, procedures you can take, take place. Um, does that make sense? Did that answer your, your general question? 
Um, it's just, it was definitely super helpful. I just didn't fully understand the uh, the Rockville scenario. In this scenario, I provide some rune, and the and the bonder doesn't give me the Bitcoin. Is that is that it? Was that it? I'm oh, sorry. Can you say it again. Um, like all the things you said was very helpful. I just didn't understand fully the the Rockville scenario. Um, yeah. How does that actually work again? Yeah. So here's how the Rockville scenario works. Uh, I'm running a, a vault node. Right, uh, I'm, run, I'm I'm providing inf infrastructure. I'm providing technical skill sets. I know how to run a, a light node, so you know, yay on me. And I convince you to give me a bunch of rune to, to bond into my light node, right? And let's just say that I, I put up, you know, ten thousand dollars worth of rune in my in, in bonding to this node, and you put in you know ninety thousand dollars worth of rune, right? So there's kind of an, uh, an uneven system here between you and I. The network will then, because you have $100,000 worth of rune bonded on for this node, the network will now give me approximately uh, $50,000 of Bitcoin or Ethereum or some asset. It doesn't matter which one. So it gives you about $50,000 worth of that asset. So the, my node that I'm running literally has $50,000 sitting on it in its wallet that's running on that server, right? And so if I wanted to, if I want to be malicious, I want to be you know, an asshole – I could go ahead to my own server and I can get the private key and I can send the Bitcoin to my BC1 address and walk away with all that $50,000 of Bitcoin. And when that happens, the network will observe that I just stole the Bitcoin because I saw the transaction go out. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a whitelisted transaction, right? And so the network says, oh, shit, this guy just sent out the Bitcoin to a BC1 address that was not authorized. So this is considered to be theft. This is going to be stolen. So the network says, okay, he just stole $50,000 worth of uh, Bitcoin. Let's slash his bond 1.5x. That's $75,000 of, of rune. They get, basically gets dumped back into the, the Bitcoin pool to replenish the value of the BDC that was stolen. And so I walked away from $50,000. I may have burned my $10,000 with a rune as well, but I'm still walking, around with a, walking away with a $40,000 profit, right? But you, you just got screwed, man. You just lost, you know, $65,000 of your bond and you have no Bitcoin to, you know, show for it. So you just, you know, you got rug pulled. I just rug pulled you. I st stole all the assets underneath it in the, in the vault and walked away, a, a, you know, a wealthier man because of it. And so because of that, you have to be very concerned about, or very considerate of like who, if you're going to be trusting somebody else to run a node for you, you have to trust that person. You have to know who they are. You have to shake their hand in a matter of speaking. And making sure that they're, you know, on the up and up. They're not, they're, they're not going to rug pull you. Because if they do rug pull you, then the network can't do anything for you. It's already happened. The network's not, not going to, you know, try to mitigate these kind of scenarios. That, that becomes on you to talk to that person, to, you know, knock on their door, to, you know, uh, file a claim with a legal lawsuit possibly. Or I don't know what the actual process would be. That's, that's on your shoulders to figure that out. Um, okay. That, that's... Very clear. And maybe one last question could be: um, Why do we why do we consider the deleg delegation uh, scenario here in the light nodes case and not not in the like uh, normal uh, bonders case? Um, yes. So in the normal bonders case, with delegation, I can effectively let's say that the network in total has half a uh, five hundred million dollars of Bitcoin, Ethereum, like all the pools combined of the, the non-Rune assets, the Bitcoin, the Ethereum, the Tether, the UST, the Luna, like all these things. Let's just say it, it combines to be 
million dollars. Let's just say for, for argument's sake here, right? In order to uh, cyber attack or gain, have access to enough TSS shares or to the, the, the actual chain itself um, to, to be able to attack it, I need to have two thirds majority of the nodes, right? And in order to have two thirds majority of the nodes, I need you know X amount of room, which is going to be you know a uh, billion dollar a billion dollars worth of room, right? Now I don't I don't really have a billion dollars in room, right? And so I might convince you know I might put up a hundred thousand or something like this or some number that I may have, but then I might convince you to provide for, provide me some room and your friend John and your friend Jacob and your friend Jessica and you know and, and start a marketing campaign and Twitter campaign and telling everybody in the world like oh you should you should bond up with my node blah 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 because of you know whatever I, I convince people to do it so eventually i get to the place where I, I collect enough room that i'm actually capable of, of running enough nodes where i can then have access to the entire network i can actually deploy a new version of the chain and universally do it on my own because i have two-thirds majority of the nodes so i can go ahead and make i can make any changes in the network that i choose including just sending myself all the funds that's bad right that's a bad situation um that's why you you by doing delegate proof of stake on the validators is problematic because it always it always exposes you to economic insecurity. But with vault nodes, it doesn't matter because you can't actually cause a change and you don't have access to TSS. You don't have access to the validator nodes, the, the actual nodes of the chain. You don't have access to any of those things. So it doesn't matter how much rune you collect. You could collect $10 billion of the rune. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You will never have enough uh, asset to be able to, to make and to institute any kind of change whatsoever. You can't access the, the Ubisoft funds. You can't access the Asgard funds. You can't access any of these things. And so that's why it's you don't worry about uh, being attacked. Is because you will never you'll never have access to be able to make a change to the network to be able to steal the funds. The, the uh, last question, and then I leave. And, and thank you for that, and taking your time. Um, this seems Shoot. like a very viable solution. I just uh, wonder, like, what are the challenges now ahead of you to to for for the community basically to implement this and yeah, make make for this vault, a reality for, for vault nodes or light, light nodes. Yeah, for vault nodes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's already started. The work around this has already been started by, by um, Iridanus uh, from Nine Realms has been working on this, and I've been uh, helping him along as an advisor on this particular uh, code change. It's a large code change. It takes, it takes a lot of ch changes to be made. Uh, all of it has to be validated, tested, all these kind of things. Um, it's been kind of pushed to the back burner a little bit um, as Iridanus has kind of refocused attention onto, I think it's StageNet or something else. So it's kind of been pushed in the back, but then there's always this kind of the discussion like of like, okay, do we still need vault nodes if we have you know the ability for multiple people to provide bond into a validator one, but that that, that requires KYC. So that there's kind of a discussion or a debate within the community, within the core devs, and these kind of things of what is the correct thing here. I actually personally think I still lean towards the vault nodes. It's a lot more work and it's a lot more technically challenging because you're instituting an entire new kind of like type of vault and management of that and, and um, a lot more code to write and this kind of stuff. But it is the more correct design, at least from my perspective. It's more, it's the more, it's a safer approach. Going with a pooled validator where multiple bonders are providing to a validator 
in a KYC fashion, in a non-delegate proof of stake, but KYC fashioned. Um, that's not as worried about cyber attack in that scenario because you, you just can't get you have to whitelist everybody by hand, and so you can't just get like a bunch of people to provide capital all at once. It's just not practical to cyber attack in that situation. Um, and that's a lower hanging fruit to do. I mean, I've actually already wrote the code to to make that change. It's actually I actually have a PR open right now, um, that much the community can debate whether or not they want to merge it or don't merge it. It's up to the uh, up to the community to decide those those things. But in order to do that, we still need to do um, another change, which is which is uh, something Danis is working on um, around uh, payment or rewards for node operators to be relative to bond size rather than relative to node count. And that's a different kind of mechanism of how we, we pay, how we calculate the, the, the ROI for different node operators. And you can't really do what we're talking about for vault nodes or pool validators without having a payout that's relative to the bond size. Um, you need you kind of need that there. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. Like if I, if I have a validator and I'm getting paid out by number of nodes of one validator. I make, let's say, 6,000 6, rune a month, which is about correct. Um, if I take on your bond and, I'm, and I'm, I have to pay you out you know, 20% because you provide 20%, I provide 80% or something of this nature, I have to pay you 20%. I'm, I'm actually just paying you out for nothing. Like I, I, I could just keep the full 6,000 myself and then walk away a wealthier man, or I could take your 20% you know, and, and get, make slightly less than 6,000% 6,000 room per month. So it, it, it makes no economic sense really uh, for me to, to, to kind of like work with you and, and take, take your room um, into my node. The only way it makes sense is that the, the node payout is relative to bond size. And then on top of that, there's like a node operator fee where I charge you, you know, 10% or 5% or 20%, whatever I choose for my, my own node of like, an operator fee for for providing the infrastructure on your behalf, um, just to make it profitable for me, so I can run my own node. I get paid, you know, six thousand dollars, six thousand rune rather per month, and then I take your rune as well, and I'm getting additional, you know, five hundred rune a month from that as well. Okay, no, there's no skin off my teeth. Like it's, it doesn't take any more time or pressure or work on my behalf really, and I can earn more profit from from my node. Psh, makes sense to me, right? So that's kind of the uh, the the intent, at least, of this notion. So th there's really like, a, like almost like a choo-choo train, like a, of like different things that need to come into play before you can get to the whole vault note thing, in a sense. Yep. Thank you. Um, yeah, you very insightful. Yeah. No worries. Any other questions? I'm good. <laughs> Anyone have any other questions before we close it up? Uh, I do. I do have one, Chaz. So off, a lot of people that have rune holdings have thought about running a node. Um, yeah. If someone's fairly new, I've still got my node series out there. I was thinking of doing one, just walking through the docs, so people can understand what it's all about. Trying to demystify it a bit. Um, obviously, there are, there are risks. It's not just something you can just ape into and, and try and get some some good APY for no risk. So what it, what's your thoughts around somebody to say, okay, look, I've got somehow put a million dollars worth of spare rune and, and now I want to think about being a, a node operator to lift the total bond. What type of, what, what thinking should be applied to that to, you know, not, not to undersell how simple it is. 
Well, um, we've actually made it um, very simple. Um, that's actually a problem, to be honest with you, because like the actual process to, to build and deploy a node, we've abstracted away through Terraform scripts, through Kubernetes uh, configuration, Helm charts, all these things. So that it's actually like, you can literally do it with like a few commands. It's like, it's really dumb simple. Uh, which becomes actually a problem because we've made it so easy for people to run a node that if something goes wrong, right, if there's a problem, like, you know, one of the PVCs is, goes offline or you can't, you know, you need to s scale up the disk from 300 gigabytes to 600 gigabytes to, to, to fit the Binance chain, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Like, if you don't know Kubernetes and you don't know Helm charts, you don't know how to use all these, like, you don't know Linux commands and these things that you've just really kind of put yourself into a kind of a bad position because you, really, you don't really know how to, what you're doing. So if something breaks, like you don't have the, the, the foundation to, to, to fix it. So we actually made it uh, shockingly easy to run a node, uh, but it does require technical skill sets for sure. Um, there are risks involved. Probably the, the biggest risk is you need to make sure that your node is secure and that it doesn't have any open ports or, you know, um, any way for, for a malicious actor to, to kind of, you know, get into your node, the zero day kind of uh, rootkit your node and, and get into some kind of backdoor and execute some arbitrary code on your box. You don't want that, obviously. Um, we've done this in a way where we're, we're kind of, we built a standard configuration in a way, and this is a, this is a big debate. Um, actually, my friend, uh, who I think is actually in the in the room as he was earlier. Uh, we debated about whether or not this was a good idea or not because if you have it so that uh, everybody's in the same standard configuration, then if there's a problem, then everybody has the problem and you've just exposed everybody's node, right? That's the negative. And the, but the con is the the pro is is that everybody's in the same standard configuration. That configuration has been more hardened. It's been more studied. It's been more you know correctly designed than having each individual person design their own system, which is more likely to, at least in my view, to have some sort of firewall issue or, or what have you. Uh, so the most important thing is that you make your node so it's not, um, it can't be exploited in a way that, that steals all the funds out of the Yggdrasil. If that happens, you lost a lot of money. Um, don't, so don't do that. Uh, that would be really, really bad. But that's really like the, probably the most significant risk of running a node. Everything else is pretty straightforward. There are some like, you know, um, growing pains, uh, some bugs that the network needs to work out of like slashing people inappropriately when they didn't do anything wrong, but the network you know, had some edge case scenario where it double signed a transaction or something like this. Uh, that's less true today. That's more true in the earlier days. And as time goes on, we're going to make things more, uh, you know, resilient in this sense. But um, it's relatively uh, low risk relatively speaking, uh, and it's pretty consistent income as well, which is really, really nice. Um, whereas being an LP in a pool is a little bit different in the sense that um, you, the risk is, you know, uh, a permanent loss and uh, the network being exploited and all these kind of things. Um, you, have, you have less risk for a, a node operator than you do as an LP to be honest with you. Well, that's true. That's good. That's good. Uh, I think, some knowledge, yeah, like you said, some knowledge is, is good because you don't want to be like being an active node operator and then doing a make make 
destroy tools. <laughs> Oh, yes, on, on your command, that'd be pretty bad. So pe- people have done this, right? Like, no, I know. <laughs> so for, for people who don't know, so there's a thing in Linux called Make M A K E, and it's basically a way. It's like a shortcut, right? It's like it's like a um, it's kind of like a uh, um, it's kind of conceptually like a um, a convenience button on your remote control that takes you directly to Netflix, right? But, but it's just like Make Netflix, and yeah. it's like and, and it does something. Can be somewhat complex, but it just makes it so much easy. It makes it really easy to to, to kind of implement, right? Because uh, you just make Netflix, whatever, and it just it launches Netflix. So I guess it's conceptually somewhat similar. And so, you, but you have to be careful about doing this because if you do like make destroy, right? <laughs> you probably don't want to do that because if you destroy everything, no. you're you're going you're to destroy the funds potentially as well, right? You'll you'll burn your private key forever. So. And there has been people who have done this. Like there was a, a guy who he decided to, to not run the standard configuration of a Thor node and he ran his, his own thing and he had his own, you know, setup and all this kind of stuff. And then he, uh, his, his disk drive, the way he, he had things like using a, a disk um, software that basically replicates data across two different disks. And that thing was just completely hosed. Like he did something. I don't even know what he did, honestly. But somehow he completely hosed it and destroyed like all the data. Which was, you know, obviously not good. Which included the private key, oh, and so it, that was a, a a big pain in the butt. And we tried our best to to help him out as much as we could. But like, there has been happened where people actually like did make something, uh, not thinking. Um, people used to like used to like make install like the testnet environment onto a mainnet like node, right? Like that's oh yeah. So like yeah. we, we we and over time we've made things easier harder and harder to like to fuck it up right to, to make to make these commands more idiot proof uh, and then as they always say like you make something idiot proof the universe will just produce a bigger idiot which is you know kind of true um, but we, we we've made things uh, harder and harder and harder to to fuck them up but but you still like you can do a lot of damage if you, if you don't know what you're doing you know so you be very careful about how you're interacting with that system and. You know, and that's the problem. The problem with these like make commands is that like it abstracts away what's actually happening, and so you don't really know what you're doing when you execute. You're like, oh, make Netflix, right? You're you're telling it to do something, but you don't really know how that's actually happening underneath it all, right? And, you, and it's yeah. better that it's better that you do, right? It's better that you actually have an understanding. You know, yeah, the- it's almost it's almost like um um like if you were driving a car and you had it on like on like on uh, um, an autopilot, but with uh, cruise control, right? Like you abstract away the, the idea of hitting the gas and hitting the brake, but you probably should have an understanding of how that works. <laughs> just in case the, in case the auto, the, the cruise control turns off for some reason, you don't want to be like, Oh shit. Uh, what's a gas pedal. What's a brake pedal. Like in the car is moving, right? Like you, you, you don't want to do that. Like, so you, so even though we make it easy for you to, to do a, you know, make Netflix or whatever, so that you don't have to hit the gas pedal, the brake pedal, you know, metaphorically speaking uh, it's best that you actually do so in case something happens you're like oh i know what's happening here i can do this and hit the gas pedal and the car goes you know hit the brake pedal i can stop the car safely right you don't need to actually understand uh how an engine works or how pistons work or how a spark plug works per se you don't have to go too deep into the weeds which you can get infinitesimally into the weeds if you're if you really want to be privy to that but you should have an understanding of how to turn a wheel how to hit the brake pedal yeah. and the gas pedal. Like you should have that basic understanding. You don't necessarily need to understand the internals of, a, of an engine. 
but you do understand, you should have an understanding of how to use, how to operate the car itself rather, rather, rather than relying it to be on autopilot the whole fucking time. Because it's right, then these mates can call a bunch of scripts underneath that, that do all the commands so that way you don't have to worry about it. Um, yeah. Everything is cool. like cleverly scripted in a way. It's very cleanly mm. written. All that code is actually written. People can uh, read the source code and understand what's happening underneath it all if they want to understand what's happening when you do a make update or a make destroy or a make install, you know, install or a make uh, a deploy tools or help commanders. You can read those scripts and understand what's being executed and then read into those commands and what are those commands doing and kind of like just kind of go down the, the rabbit hole in a matter of speaking. And I would encourage people to do that at some point. If you're running a node, I mean, if you're running a node, you're, you really have millions of dollars worth of rune on a, on a box. <laughs> and so you should take that shit seriously. You should take that sit as, as if it's a full-time job because you're literally making the income. You're, you're making like 6,400 rune a month right now running a node. So like, that, that's a full-time job right there, right? Like that's a lot of money. That, that you're making. So you should, you should take it seriously and, and actually understand everything. So I always encourage people to do that if, if, they, if they're running on node. That's pretty good. I think I remember um, when Single Chain Cast Net was launched, someone had uh, done, put two nodes under the same admin computer. So they had, you know, got their Linux terminal, done the make um, CastNet validator and then the make um, testnet validator, two different node yeah. deployments. And then they didn't update their Kubernetes configuration to, to, to point to the different one. Then they destroyed their. Um, they think they are destroying their testnet when they're destroying the castnet one. And yeah. they're like, "Oh, whoops, my bad." <laughs> so yeah, that's lots of don't traps. Do that. That's don't do, that's bad. That's really a bad thing. You don't want to do that. <laughs> but again, like we've put some new kind of safeguards on the system so that it makes it harder to do that. You know, you, oh, like, you clearly get, say don't do that. But you you have to assume that people aren't reading the docs because people don't read docs, right? And so like now when you do like a, a make command that is that has some sort of impactful change, it actually will prompt you now. It'll say like, hey, you're changing, you're like destroying this on you know this mainnet node, blah blah blah. Like it makes it in a way that forces you to 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 at least hit the prompt and say, Yes, I approve, let's destroy my mainnet thing. At least it's has that prompt now so you don't accidentally do that yeah which by well, that's the way, good uh, kind of comedically that's exactly what happened on to amazon this is like seven years ago like amazon was like down for like a day and a half because some devops engineer hit a you know fat finger to command to like to, to, to destroy something and he selected the wrong thing and because there wasn't a, a, a command like a prompt saying yes or no like are you sure you want to do this <laughs> So he destroyed an entire like data center in a heartbeat, uh, and the whole like AWS was like down for like I think a day and a half or two days, something like this, all because there wasn't a prompt <laughs> for that guy to like, are you sure you want to destroy the entire environment of this? <laughs> there was no prompt for that, and it's like, yeah, there should always be prompts when it comes to something as as harmful as permanent destruction. Uh, awesome, yeah, it should. So I think. I think more node operators is a good thing, but they're just and that and that can immediately increase the caps. But that um, that does require risk and understanding before entering that. It's not like a light. From what I my perspective, it's just not like a light decision. No, it's not a light decision. People should take that seriously and and not do it as like it's not the same as like running like a Bitcoin node, right? No, Bitcoin node no. is very very simple to do, and it doesn't matter.
wrong, you can literally lose hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars if you get it wrong. So you should think of it within that context. That should be, I've, I always kind of try to push people in this regard, which is why we're kind of exploring the idea of like being able to provide bond to a node operator that, you know, is, you know, I've had people talk, talk to me in the past, like, Hey, I, I have a big, you know, a holder of rune. I got a lot of rune. I love to run a node, but I have no technical skills. Like, should I like just kind of like read about it and run a node? I'm just like, eh, not so sure. Like I've always said that even in the early days, I said like, if you've never run, if you've never, if you've never used pager duty yourself in your life, then you probably should not be running a node. <laughs> Meaning that you've never pro professionally run infrastructure for a service in your life. And so um, by being able to, to create an, an easy mechanism for the community to be able to provide room without requiring the technical skill sets kind of opens up for a lot more people to participate in running a node than do today. And that, to me, that pushes us further down the line of decentralization, right? I Look, to be fair, I never knew what PageDuty was. Uh, but I did understand Docker and Linux, um, like containerization and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So I say I say because PagerDuty is basically like an on-call system that, like, if the network breaks or a server goes down or something happens, yeah. there are a full-time staff of individuals, typically system engineering, DevOps staff, who receive text messages, pay, you know, push notifications, like literally phone calls from an automated system that says, "Hey, this data center is down, or this server is down, or this." network interfaces offline or blah, 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 like whatever it might be. So I've literally run that professional infrastructure for um, companies like Brightcove and for uh, um, uh, Cloudant and, and uh, uh, RStudio, other companies as well. And I've literally like been, you know, page at 2.30 in the morning. And I had to get my ass out of bed to fix some server that went down or something that broke uh, in whatever company that I'm working for at the time. And so like that just, that means that I've, I've had enough experience running in like high availability, high um, performance uh, network infrastructure that, that takes, you know, hundreds of millions of transactions uh, or, or uh, requests, you know, in a day or so. And so like, that's something we, I, I, I kind of encourage more of those types of people to run nodes because they're just, they're mm -hmm. just better at it. They understand what they're doing, they, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you can't learn Kubernetes. You can't learn Helm charts. You can't learn Linux commands. All these things. If you're if you're if you're really kind of privy to it, and you really look, and you want to do it, like you know, uh, just you know, spend the time, educate yourself, learn, read. Chad, you remember yeah. you remember when the Log4j vulnerability came out? How we yeah. were like literally sitting there going through every individual. Uh, Helm deployment and looking at the image and then looking at yep. the source code of the image and seeing yep. if every single image had any JVM exposure whatsoever. Um, you know, that's kind of like the level of scrutiny that you need to look at this infrastructure at. You can't, you can't, you know, you can run a make install command, but if you have no idea what you're installing, you have no idea what you're vulnerable to. And so while it's good, you know, right now, I think we should encourage more people to become node operators we should strive to an end state where every node operator um, is covered by or run is themselves a world-class infrastructure and security expert. Um, Cause yep. that's what it's going to be, what it's going to take to really secure, secure ThorChain. After we're sure that the protocol itself is secure, all eyes turn to infrastructure. So right now yep. people are looking like at how can I prune ThorChain the protocol? Um, once the protocol is battle tested and secure, 
people and attackers will turn their attention to, well, how can I just prune this, this node operator? Um, And so like, while right now we are as a team um, here to help you, um, you know, if something happens, if your bond gets slashed for something like, you know, we'll refund you if it ends up being, you know, due to a bug in the code. Um, But like that won't always be in place. You're not always going to get refunded whenever you get slashed. You're not going to get, you're not going to get refunded if, you know, somebody hacks into your node and like, you know, prunes your entire box. So, so eventually people have to have a lot of skills. And so what I'm telling people is like, if you have no skills whatsoever right now and you just want to like run a node and earn yield on your, on your rune, there's better ways to do that. You can either pull it with nine realms or, you know, we can, we can ship a feature like pool validators and you can just pull to someone else's validator. Um, We should build things into the protocol that allow non skilled people to add rune and bond to the network. That's, that's an absolute given. Um, But in terms of like, you know, and, and so, and also that likewise, you know, we've had even uh, people within the ecosystem come to us and ask us like other projects that have a bunch of room to run nodes for them. And that's one of the times that we would, you know, actually recommend, well, you're, you're an operator or you're an owner of this ecosystem and you have a ton of room. So it actually might be in your best interest to learn more about how Thornode works and how infrastructure works. So it might make sense for you to invest in the time and, yeah. and energy to run a node because ultimately it will make you a better participant in this network. But for people that just have no skill whatsoever, like we, they should just, you know, bond it to somebody else who knows what they're doing and that person should just take a fee of it. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. As I mean, that log for J thing is a really good example because um, you know, I, I'm not going to be in this project forever. I, I plan on leaving at some point. And so that I can pursue other things that I really want to build. Um, and, you know, maybe you're not going to be around forever as well. So uh, the next time we have a log for J scenario, then, you know, really the, the node operators collectively should be working together and say, oh, hey, there's a new exploit and, and a very commonly used Java library. And, and we need to figure out what our exposure is and if our servers are safe from this you know, exploit and, you know, and collectively move together to, to, to figure out what the, if there's any problem right and there ended up not being a, a significant problem in our case and for this particular time but that may not be true you know in six months if there's another kind of problem with some other um library some golang library for example that has some sort of exploit in it right so the i wanted i would love the the node operators to get away from leaning on a, a, a few choice individuals you know like myself or pluto for example to you know have all the weight and, and and expectations of us to maintain all things. I think that's okay in the beginning and, and just to set a standard and this kind of thing. But I, I would hope that more node operators kind of take on more of, the, of a role uh, within the community to, to contribute, you know, and not rely on me or, or Pluto to, to do, you know, um, to look into a particular exploit or solve a, maybe even solve a, a slashing bug that, that slashes inappropriately. Maybe, somebody else in the community can figure out, oh, why was there node slash? And what, what changes can we make to the, the protocol to make this edge case, you know, not so um, problematic, right? And so rather than relying on me or Heimdale or Pluto or, or one of these kind of key players. Cool. Hey, um, I'm going to have to go shoot. So, yep. <laughs> but I do want to ask Pluto, whilst he's on, what are you most optimistic for in the next six months? And what do you see as the biggest challenge going forward? 
for the next six months. And Chad's already talked about the bond being a challenge. So I want to see if you can think of something else. Yeah, I think just like even just from the discussion we had earlier, like security around new chains. Um, but also w- one thing that I'm really interested in is trying to shard by frost. Um, because right now, like, when we do churns, the entire network has to churn together. So every every vault, all the assets have to, you know, move together in one sort of coordinated churn symphony. Um, and every node has to participate in that at, you know, at the same time or else churns fail. And what I would like to do in the future is potentially see if there's a way to make it just a little bit more resilient to other chains having issues, right? So if like, if one of these chains that, you know, is like a proof of stake network or maybe even like a more centralized type chain, um, like, uh, you know, if, if, if there's any issues with any of the chains in, in ThorChain trying to churn, um, meaning like block stop getting produced or whatever, um, all of ThorChain will kind of grind to a halt. And so while we've only integrated like the, you know, the best um, chains with the highest uptime so far, you know, we, we are only as strong as our weakest link right now. And so one of the things I would like to see is actually to kind of re-architect the, the vaults to be a bit more independent. Um, and that would also help from a security perspective, just to make sure that like, um, you know, I don't know, just you're, 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 like each chain, each Bifrost client is like participating in its own TSS ceremony to move its own funds across its own chains. Like it, it kind of just makes sense from an architecture perspective. Um, but, you know, we'll see what the challenges there lie, but for me, it's going to be mostly, yeah, about adding new chains and making sure that those chains are resilient and that they don't adversely impact the performance of ThorChain as a whole. Um, those, are, those are the things I'm most excited about or and also most concerned about simultaneously. <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, um, so I'm going to go. It's Christmas Eve here, and I've got to do cooking tomorrow, so I'm going to do more prep. Um so I, unless someone wants to host or, or continue on, um, I am going to leave the chat. Thanks very much for everyone that um, that joined and participated. But if uh, Chad and Pluto want to keep going, you're more than welcome. Uh, it's up to you. I will. What I'll do is add Morgan, and then after that, because I've got some requests to speak, if you want. Morgan ask a question and then that'll be it. Great. Thanks for putting this together, uh, Chris. And thanks for that uh, fantastic dev update you put out recently. If anyone hasn't read that, um, go check it out. I think it's a really good synopsis of, you know, wh- where we were at, where we've come, where we are now and where we're going. Well, that's, thanks. That's a team effort. Uh, I gotta say, so I, I think clarity uh, around the communication about what we're doing, crystallizing our path forward and then delivering on that. Obviously, delivery is probably the, the key thing that matters in in crypto. I think it's really important. So um, that's that's something that, that I really like. And then, you know, going ahead and then actually delivering on that, having that transparency um, throughout. So I'm looking forward to... to um, the delivery of what's on that roadmap as well. So getting Luna, getting getting um, all that type of stuff delivered and then paving the way for uh, the synthetics next year. So I'm, I'm really excited. Thanks for hosting and asking me all those questions and mediating the whole thing and for putting up with a 
two hour long uh, extravaganza here. <laughs> and anybody in the audience has been sitting around for two hours listening to me yammer on about horse shit, you know, yeah, good props on you for, for just listening to me just, <laughs> just go on for hours about stuff. <laughs> uh, Chad, the more I listen, the more excited I get. Uh, so I'm sure I could, I could pick your brain uh, for quite some time. We'll have to do it again. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the more recent uh, videos, someone put it in a comment. They wanted to see me do a uh, video with yourself or something like that. <laughs> it's quite funny. Hey, man, I'm down. All right, cool. All right, I think Morgan's got uh, the last last speaker, but um, I'm going to drop off now. Thanks, everyone. Nice yep. Thanks. Thanks, million. Yeah, yeah, good, good, great. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks very much for doing this, and uh, amazing to see the uh, the work the devs have put in, especially over the last year. And looking forward to next year. Um, this is a question, maybe more on the like comms marketing side, um, but curious to hear, hear your thoughts um, about approaching. Um, well, for for context, um, there's a proposal up on SushiSwap to do a reorganization of the the DAO there. Um, and one of the, the more interesting ones is um, Daniel Sesta from um, um, Bricadabra and uh, a few other protocols he owns or has built um, is, might be taken over the lead as like a, you know, a chief strategist. And so curious um, because in, in his protocol, or sorry, in his proposal, he'd mentioned about turning Sushi into a, uh, cross chain. Um, I'm so so curious to hear your thoughts on if it's worth you know publicly um, courting uh, Daniela and the 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 sushi folks about um, yeah an integration with, with Torchain in uh, you know Q1 Q2 next year possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think this is one of the things I'm one of the areas I'm very excited about Torchain getting involved with is just like it becoming kind of this transparent thing that you don't even know is there. Right. And, and like, um, like shapeshift is probably the first and, and, and prominent example of that. Of just like, you're interacting with shapeshift, you're swapping, you're trading, but in the background, what's actually happening is, you know, they're doing swaps on Thorchain to fulfill whatever, you know, transaction you want to do. And so people are using Thorchain who have no idea they're using Thorchain. Right. And I think sushi would be another kind of good example of this is you know you can swap ethereum or usdt to bitcoin or something like this and what's actually happening is just kind of redirecting uh that transaction to thorchain and then it sends the bitcoin to the bc1 address of your choice all this kind of stuff uh there's still some work that needs to be done around the uh, the uh s router because the s router is is um there's not a static uh, address that you can send your funds to it's it's like mostly static, but not entirely static. Like, if we never change, upgrade the router again, then that then that's the address and it'll, it'll never change. But we might want to change it at some point by adding. A, I want to add a feature at some point, uh, possibly in the future. So we need to figure out a, a way, which is a totally solvable problem, but uh, to, to 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 create a, a single address uh, that people can swap to that goes to whatever the correct ETH address. So we might need to put like a wrapper around. Um, around the ETH router to, to support something like this. But that's totally a solvable problem and like not something I'm actually all that like worried about. I think that's pretty, that's a relatively somewhat easy problem to solve. So um, I would totally encourage Sushi or, you know, UD or any of these, you know, characters, these projects to, you know, consider going cross chain. And the only option for them, honestly, 
is, is Thorchain because Thorchain is the only one that actually supports uh, the, the most important asset, which is obviously Bitcoin being, you know, the biggest behemoth in a sense. Like getting us getting us rid of the of people using these kind of BDC wrapped assets like RenBDC or WBDC and these kind of things is like something we should all be striving for in the industry, whether you're an ETH maxi or a Bitcoin maxi, like get rid of these things. These things are like they're completely unnecessary and they just add more risk to the system, which we don't really want to do so yeah absolutely sushi i mean and the team could totally reach out to me or or, or other people other core devs and have that conversation um so i'm i'll be super excited to, to get that integration going i think it was talked about before like a while back uh, i think Zerox maki talked about integrating with thorchain like six months ago or nine months ago something like this um there was definitely talk about it and i think there was a a a um proposal that was put up and was debated in the community, but hopefully they can revisit it and, and take it more seriously this time and, and actually implement it. Like that, that I'd be totally down for that for sure. Sick, nice one. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anybody else who wants to ask a question or not or what. I think uh, um, we're the the hosts have left, so I think we're going to just wrap it here. All right, sounds good yeah. to me. Thanks everybody right. for for sitting through a, a two hour long you know chat. Hopefully it was uh, fun and educational, and uh, people learned a few things. Awesome! Thanks for keeping it going, Chad. Yep. Take care. All right. Bye, guys.